0: Our passage that we're covering today is all of Joshua chapter 22. Uh, Would you please stand with me uh, as I read the first five verses um, of this passage? At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies which which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is God's word. You may be seated. So there are basically four parts to the book of Joshua. You have the first four chapters that that talk about the entering of the land. You have the next seven chapters that talk about the Israelites taking the land. Then you have the chapters 13 through 21, which we covered last week, which was the allocation of the land. And today we cross into this fourth and final section, three chapters that talk about the Israelites struggle to retain the land. So we're stepping into retaining the land at this point. And to me, this transition from chapter 21 to chapter 22, you can feel a change in it. And and you can see if you know what to look for, there's one more time in scripture where this pattern is underscored of God always preceding works with grace. Grace always precedes works. We see it here, we see it certainly Romans. The book of Romans comes to mind where you have the first 11 chapters. There isn't a single action point. There isn't a single to-do in the first 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 verse one starts with what word? Therefore, because of all of the theological groundwork laid, therefore, and then you get this fire hydrant of to-dos and action items. Grace precedes works. You know, when we think of works, probably the Ten Commandments would come to mind. And we can miss the fact that the Ten Commandments is preceded by what? God saving Israel out of slavery, delivering them, and after that grace, they're given some commands. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 where God says, you can eat of all this grace, but don't eat of this law. So over and over again in this book, of uh, the whole book, we see that grace precedes works. And in the same way, in this transition from chapter 21 to chapter 22, you feel this kind of shift. Because in the first 21 chapters, you have this emphasis on God is faithful. God will be faithful to Israel. God does what he says he will do. He keeps his covenant. And then in this shift you feel a noticeable transition to now you Israel must do the same. You Israel must remain faithful. And the next three chapters are kind of divided up fairly easily because Joshua is calling in each chapter some contingent of Israel before him and he's commanding them to do something. So what is that thing in chapter 22? God is calling this two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, who are about to go over and take their land, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. He's calling them together, and he's telling them, "You must remain faithful. You must remain faithful after you cross this river." And he has this this one verse, chapter. 22 verse 5 that should sound very familiar if you either grew up in church or you've been reading your Bible for quite some time now. Joshua says only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So what does that sound like? It's Joshua's version of the greatest commandment that we have in Deuteronomy 6, in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your mind. Joshua knows they're about to go on the other side of the Jordan River. And he's telling them through the greatest commandment, remain faithful. Remain faithful to the Lord over there. And I think it's kind of an interesting season if you pay attention to Christian news outlets they were talking this morning about remaining faithful to the Lord because if you keep up with current events you know that there has been this wave of pastors and other prominent Christian figures who have either been exposed for significant moral failings or they've just walked away from the faith completely and so when we as Christians observe this taking place it whether we want to admit it or not it affects us we begin to have to process what's going on there and what is it exactly that's going to prevent me from having the same story? What's going to enable me to be faithful? And even though we may not ever be famous, what's going to enable me to communicate to the people who are in our lives that Jesus is significant and he is worthy enough to remain faithful to? I was talking with Matt this morning about the song, How Great Thou Art. Every time we sing the song, How Great Thou Art, it is a reminder that there are those among us who do not remain faithful because the author of that song who wrote, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, himself fell away completely and died not believing that Jesus was Lord of his life. So what is it that is going to enable us to remain faithful? And I think that's exactly what this passage tells us. In this passage, we see the challenges to faithfulness and we see the components to faithfulness. So that's what we're going to look at as we walk through this story. So first, the challenges. I think we see two very specific set of challenges in the story. And the first is separation. And so it's really easy in our bridge-oriented society to not realize what a significant moment is happening here and how high the emotions would have been. These men have been fighting together for seven years. And I have never, I've never fought in a war, but from what I understand, that has a significant bonding effect. I mean, I see on TV, you know, people that veterans gathering at places like Normandy and Pearl Harbor and you can see that they're they're bonded through what they've been through and we have to acknowledge that as as significant as that bond might be the Israelites have fought side by side longer than any set of veterans the United States of America has. This, This campaign was longer than any of our world wars so they're bonded at a deep level but not only are they bonded They're also sending this two and a half tribes, who they have lived with, fought with, been in the same tents with, across the River Jordan. And this is where I say it's easy in our bridge-oriented society. Every commentary I think you will probably ever read on this passage is going to underscore what a huge barrier the Jordan River was. It was so long, it was so wide, there were no bridges. I mean it was something akin to some, somebody from Great Britain in the 17th century setting off across the Atlantic Ocean to, to make a new life in this new world. One commentator went so far as to call the Jordan River the Berlin Wall of the Promised Land. So this is significant. There is a real separation that is happening here and Joshua knows that. So that's why he's bringing this contingent, these two and a half tribes in front of all of Israel and he's praising them and he's charging them to remain faithful because this kind of a separation, it can contribute to faithlessness. So I was trying to think this week, what would be an appropriate application? What would be our modern day equivalent to these two and a half tribes going to the other side of the Jordan River? And I was able to think of a few. I mean, I think probably one of the best uh, ways that this plays out in our society is when children leave home when children leave home and they get a job or they go to college, that's that kind of separation where if they don't substantively connect to another group of people who are pushing them towards Jesus, typically their, their spiritual walks are going to suffer. Or if you can fast forward maybe four, five years in my case to when you go from the beginning of college to the end of college and you're transitioning into a new life, there's statistics that show us that of the students who are involved in some sort of Christian ministry in college, 80% of them don't connect with a local church upon graduation. Now, statistics say when they get married and have children, they tend to return, but 80% of the college students who are very involved in campus ministries are not very involved in churches. So that's that kind of separation that when there's not substantive connection when there's not real work on the other side of the separation we tend to suffer spiritually so separation is a challenge to faithfulness the other challenge I think we see really clearly in this story is comfort all the Israelites have known for seven years is discomfort they have known war and wandering and now all of a sudden they have peace and prosperity they have their own land, they're building their own houses, they're growing their own crops. They don't need to rely on the Lord and his outrageous miracles for their very existence anymore. And you can, you can feel that this is on Joshua's mind because the, his version of the greatest commandment is preceded by this. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. You have been given rest. Joshua acknowledges you will have comforts you have not known in your entire lifetime. Therefore, remain faithful. There is no question that as a society becomes more comfortable, so does its form of Christianity. We're built to want things easier. So when we get comfort, we can have this tendency to modify the religion that we hold so dear. And I love how C.S. Lewis addresses this, acknowledging that the main problem with this is that Christianity was not designed to be comfortable. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. I have a, a good friend who was very involved in the gospel going behind the Iron Curtain at the, toward the end of the Cold War. And he tells the story about when he was in Poland and he had a team of people, and if you know much about Poland at the end of the Cold War, they were, they were struggling to get any kind of resources, including food. And so this team didn't have food for that night or the next day and they decided we're going to disband for a day and we're going to all go to different towns and we're going to see if we can find some food for us to eat. And so my friend went with a Polish believer to another town and they found a sack of potatoes that was going to feed their team that night. And on the way back, my friend looked at his Polish believing friend and he said, how do you do it? How do you remain faithful to Jesus Christ under these kinds of circumstances? And the Polish believer without hesitation looked back at him and said, Me? How do you do it? You have all these other things to run to outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus is literally the only thing that I have. And so we can see how comfort as it increases can really threaten our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. We follow a Lord who said, deny yourself and take up your cross, just as he has. And I don't think anybody in this room would argue the fact that we live in the most comfortable society that has ever existed. (laughs) And so we, as American Christians in the 21st century, we are going to find ourselves in a form of Christianity where all of a sudden, there isn't anybody who really knows what's going on in our life where nobody is having hard conversations with us. We're not required to have hard conversations with anybody else. We, we come to Sunday when it you know, Sunday worship, when it's convenient, mainly to be entertained and maybe to get our kids some good morals before they leave the home. We enter into a form of Christianity where our neighbors and our, our coworkers, they don't even know that we're committed to Jesus Christ as the supreme leader of our lives. That's not biblical Christianity. Those are the effects of living in a comfortable society. And the more comfortable we feel and the more we accommodate Christianity to that comfort, the less our lives are gonna look like Jesus Christ and the more they're gonna look like everyone else in the world around us. So these are what I would call the two contributing factors, the two contributing challenges to, to Israel's potential faithlessness. But these are what counselors, I think, would call presenting symptoms. Okay, There's an underlying issue. There's something deeper going on. Separation and comfort, they really are just an opportunity to do what we really want to do. I mean, separation and comfort aren't at the core what... Our main problem is, our main problem is that we don't want to be told by God what to do in our lives. We want to be God. And the biblical word for wanting to be God is sin. And we have this tendency to think that sin is all the bad decisions that we make in our life. When sin isn't all the bad decisions we we make in our life, sin is the underlying issue that makes us want to make bad decisions. That's the problem. That's why comfort and separation can so affect our ability to remain faithful to the God we serve. Faithfulness, at its core, is understanding the design in which we thrive and appreciating the boundaries that keep us there. Tim Keller def- defines faithfulness as allowing our wills to be crossed. Allowing our wills to be crossed. So I was thinking about this in terms of a, our physical bodies. We, we discipline our physical bodies. We give our physical bodies discipline so that we can have more physical freedom. You know, we, we deny our wills that extra piece of pie, that extra hour of sleep, that extra side of fries so that we can have more physical freedom. Some of us even pay people to lead classes where they try to hurt us so that we can have greater physical freedom. We discipline ourselves so that we can have freedom. We put boundaries on ourselves and we deny our wills so that we can have physical freedom and the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. But there's one big problem. The problem is that we are so far from being able to do what we need to do to get back to God. And I I was thinking about this week and there's an old reality show, it's kind of a sad show, honestly, some of you may have seen it, where they follow morbidly obese people. They, I mean, I'm mean, i talking about people who are stuck in their beds, they can't get out to their bathroom. In extreme cases, when they need medical attention, they have to take off portions of the house and bring cranes in. Spiritually speaking, that's us. You know, the issue isn't, well just begin to do some, work out, go to CrossFit, do something. In those sad cases, they're totally unable to do what they need to do. That's the state of our souls. I, I would say our souls are even worse. But that's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus comes in and not only does he pay the penalty that we owe to God, he then gives us a will to pursue God. He gets us in a place where we can pursue him, where we can delight in him, where we can be faithful to him, where we can thrive and flourish as we understand the design in which we were made to flourish and appreciate the boundaries that keep us there. And it's worth noting that it is every other world view that looks at us spiritually the way someone might be tempted to look at one of these poor people who are stuck in this debilitating obesity and say, "What's the problem? Just get up. Do some sit-ups, go work out. That's the physical equivalent of every other world viewing, every other worldview mapping out. Do these things and you'll get to God. Without Jesus, there is no way back. And any plan that tells you you can get to God without Jesus is fundamentally misunderstanding how great the problem is. These are the challenges. The challenges for the Israelites and the same challenges that exist for us. But there is hope. Let's look at the components of faithfulness in this passage. All right, I think we see three clear components. And the first one is right off the bat it's this component of celebration. We celebrate the things that we value. So Joshua is calling the two and a half tribes before everybody and before he challenges them to remain faithful, he celebrates them for their faithfulness. As you remember back in Deuteronomy when Moses was telling these tribes, these two and a half tribes, you can have this land east of the Jordan with one caveat. You've got to fight with the rest of Israel for all the promised land because it would be very easy for us to get to the Jordan River The that didn't require any fighting and for you to think why should I fight for land I'm not going to live on? But that's not what happens. These two and a half tribes, they remain faithful and Joshua praises them for their faithfulness in front of all of God's people. Now, we're not called to wage a physical war for God, but we are all called to wage a spiritual war. And so we need to be thinking as a body, what does it look like to celebrate faithfulness in our midst? And I can think of a lot of ways. Baptism is a way of celebrating somebody's faithfulness to the call of Jesus Christ in their lives. We celebrate people like Winston Miller who leave our church responding to God's call to go plant a church in South Florida. This time last year was when the the transition was happening from Kurt Heffelfinger to me and it was really sweet and encouraging to me to see y'all celebrate his 15 years of faithfulness pastoring this church. And it's important that even in the sad moments that we celebrate faithfulness that is there to celebrate. And some of you have heard me say this, I've, I've not done a lot of funerals. When the elders asked me, you know, what's your most deficient area of ministry? It was funerals. I've, the average age of the church I come from was like 13 and a half. We just didn't have a lot of funerals. Uh, but there are these rare cases where I get to do a funeral and I know the spouse of the deceased well enough to stand up there and celebrate their faithfulness to the vows they took so many decades before. We as a church, we've got to be celebrating the way that Joshua is celebrating. And I think it's no coincidence that Joshua's celebration precedes his command. You notice this? I mean, we, we celebrate first, then we command. In every area of your life, and especially the church, because this was Paul's model. Paul, when he writes in almost every case, he celebrates before he commands. It was Jesus's model when he's addressing the the seven churches in Revelation, he celebrates before he commands. So it should be our model as well, which leads me to the second component of faithfulness in this passage, community. So this passage is interesting. When you read it in your entirety, it can seem a little bit confusing about what's going on. But it's actually very simple. The tribes, the two and a half tribes, they went across the Jordan River, back across the Jordan River, and then soon after word got to the Western tribes that they had made an altar. And this was a really big deal. God had commanded them, there will only be one altar. This is a clear violation of what God said in Deuteronomy 12 take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I am commanding you to do. So why is it that it's so important that there only be one altar in all of Israel? Why is the fact that the two and a half tribes made an altar such a big deal to everyone on the other side. One commentator said simply put one altar, one faith, one people. That they would remain one people in one faith was of utmost importance to God. And so If each tribe is making his own altar, you can imagine over the years, they don't have to interact with each other the way that they they do with one altar. Their practices may begin to change and so functionally you could begin to have 12 different tribes with 12 different religions and you have 12 different people. And then if it disintegrated even further, it really would be a return to the Canaanite situation that they had been called to address. Where you have, remember all the high places that they had to tear down on their way into the promised land? These high places that were offering child sacrifices and doing things that were absolutely contrary to what God wanted his people to do. God didn't want us to fall back into that type of a situation. So he mandated, there will only be one altar. So... Let's put ourselves in the position of these western tribes for a moment. God has given us all this land. He has been faithful at every turn. And now we hear that the two and a half tribes across the river, they've put up an altar. I mean, this would have, I think would have hurt them on multiple levels. They loved these people. They had fought side by side for seven years with these people. They knew these people. So their hearts would have been grieved that, that they would have seemingly be be parting ways with these tribes. They'd be falling away from the God that had been so merciful and gracious to them. But I think they'd be kind of nervous too at the same time. I mean, they would have been concerned if two and a half tribes go rogue, might God decide to take all of our land away? And so they go over to the two and a half tribes, a a, a contingent of the Western tribes goes to the two and a half tribes and they are prepped to do whatever it takes to call them back. This is community. And yes, we see that they are prepped for war if necessary. But you can see when we read this, that isn't their hope at all. Look look at verse 19. But now, if the land of your possession, this is... This is the Western tribe speaking to the Eastern tribe. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Do you hear what they're saying? come live with us if being over here is this hard if the separation is that significant I don't know where you live, we'll find a place we love you and we want you to spiritually come back if, even if that means physically coming back and living among us this is community and it's probably unrealistic that we in this room if we don't have to go fight seven years together in war that we're gonna feel the depth of community maybe that the Israelites do but clearly there is a type of community here on display that we need to be striving for, a type of community that cares about each other, that loves each other, and that is committed to making sure we're all running the right direction. Our hope, if you are in this church, is that you would have people in your lives who know you, who know how to pray for you, who are willing to have uncomfortable conversations when necessary and vice versa. And not that everyone would have that kind of access, that would be weird, that would be like a cult, but that somebody would have that kind of access in your life. That's our hope. And for this reason, you're going to be hearing more about community groups in the next few weeks. We have, a big task ahead of us in the past eight months we've doubled in in terms of the number of people worshiping on Sundays and so we need to double the number of community groups and we believe deeply that community groups is one of the best ways to be able to connect in our increasingly mobile and spread out culture community groups provide something that contribute to the community that we want to have as we strive after what we see here between the Western tribes and the Eastern tribes. So if you're not in a community group, be on the lookout for that. I've said this probably four different times since I've been here. And I think I will say this a hundred times if I get to stay here that long, if you'll have me. I wanna grow. I think it's good that a church grows, but I only want good growth. There is something called unhealthy growth. And at my former church, We went through a season where we experienced tremendous growth. We had to go to three services. We had one Sunday, I remember when there were over 100 people who couldn't even get in the front door. We had to tell them to go away. And, you know, we we feigned humility as best we could, but inside it was all high fives. (laughs) And fast forward two years, and this new fancy church comes in with their fog lights and their lasers and their virtual pastor from another city, and hundreds of people leave our church to go to that one. And I don't think it was the fog lights or the lasers or that pastor that ultimately caused them to leave. I think if they had been substantively connected to the community of the church, they would have stayed. So if God continues to give us growth, we need to strive as a church body to make sure that growth does not come at the expense of the community that God wants all of us to be experiencing. Again, not with every single person in the room, but with some people. All right, celebration, community, and then lastly, we see a seriousness about their faithfulness. So when the the Western tribes go over and confront the Eastern tribes, we begin to see that it's actually a big mistake. Things aren't as bad as it seems. What had happened is the Eastern tribes were worried because they were separated that there would be a day that their children or grandchildren would not be allowed to worship at the altar that God had had designated so what they had made was an altar not to be used as sacrifice in any way but an altar to be a witness to this to the fact that they are a part of the people of Israel so if they ever deny the eastern tribes the eastern tribes can point and say look there's that altar a witness to the fact that we do have access to your altar and you can see the seriousness in the Eastern two and a half tribes, they say, listen, if we're rebelling against God in any way, kill us now, but we don't think we're rebelling. We actually think we're doing everything we can to make sure that generations after us will be able to worship at the one true altar. And I wonder like, how I wouldn't wanna use this text to justify arguing over every little thing in the church because we're seri- you know we're deadly serious about our faithfulness to God but but i have to think that God was really pleased <laughs> you know when when all of this misunderstanding it comes about because people on both sides were so serious about remaining faithful to the god that had been so faithful to them and it made me think this week turner my oldest when he was a toddler we would work with him and we wanted him to come when commanded that was that was a goal we say come and he comes which is really funny because my fourth kid now is more like free-range parenting but we were really <laughs> serious about those first two coming when we said come and I remember one day I, I told the dog to come here and I could see Turner in the corner of my in the playroom drop what he's doing and you know toddle his way over to me he completely misunderstood what it is that I was telling him to do. But you could see he did it out of a deep sense of wanting to honor and obey his daddy. And I don't know exactly what God feels, but I have to imagine that feeling that I had in that moment is something akin to the way he would have looked at the situation because this, this group of people on both sides of the Jordan, they were deadly serious about remaining faithful to the God of Israel. But there's one more thing. They weren't in this text generally serious about their faithfulness. There's one way that they're very specifically serious. They're serious that God would be worshipped the way that God wants to be worshipped. That's at at its core what's going on here. And We in the same way believe deeply at this church, there is a way that God has for us to worship. It's not all up for grabs. We can't just do anything that we want. There are some things that are non-negotiables. So what we do at this church is we work hard to provide what we would call a contextualized liturgy. And I know some people they hear liturgy and they hear rote and cold and up and down and clunky. Uh, That's not what we're shooting for. A liturgy means that we have something consistent that we do and we walk through the narrative of the gospel every week from beginning to the end. So you can see in your bulletin what we're doing, why we do it, and you'll see that this walk, every journey, every Sunday morning, it's going to have praise, it's going to have confession, it's going to have assurance, it's going to have pardon, it's going to it's going to have gospel proclamation and an opportunity to respond. And it's going to look different every time probably, but those components are always going to be there. And when I say, so it's liturgy, but when I say contextualized, I mean that Matt and I are going to work very hard to make sure that this process is clear and compelling and smooth and free from anything, any unnecessary distraction. We want to be as serious about God and how he wants to be worshiped as the Israelites are here in this passage. And then at the end, we see that everyone is happy and praising God. And we see Phineas, who is the leader of the Western delegate, say, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord of, of the Lord I think it's interesting, do you see how they know they have been delivered? How they know that God is in their midst, I mean. They know that God is in their midst, not because of some big miraculous sign. They know that God is in their midst because the people have been delivered from the hand of the Lord. They've been delivered from the wrath of God. And, and the really big theological term for this is propitiation. But it's important because it's at the core of our faith that we have been delivered from the hand of the Lord, that Jesus Christ has come, he's taken on the penalty for our sin, he's taken on the wrath that we deserve, he's traded places with us so that we can be sons. And he hasn't just traded places with us, he's given us a spirit of faithfulness, a desire to follow God. That's what propitiation accomplishes and that's how we know that the Lord is in our midst. And so we come on Sundays and we praise him for that. And we leave on Sundays praising him for that and desiring to grow in that understanding, that knowledge and communicate that to people around us. And here we get to the core answer of the question. How is it that we are going to remain faithful? How is it that our story is not going to be like the stories that we're seeing in the news outlets right now? And the answer is, is to keep our eyes on the faithfulness of God to us in Jesus Christ. If we simply rest in the faithfulness of God to us, it will make us faithful. We pursue him in the power of his Holy Spirit, in the community of God's people, in the wisdom of his word. And we will remain faithful. And that faithfulness will result in us Enjoying and living with our eternal God in His eternal, better promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, free from any sin, pain, or strife. That's how we remain faithful. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that every every work is preceded by grace. We are thankful that you, you command us only to do the things that are good for us, that obedience draws us into your will. And we thank you for this example in scripture of what it looks like as a corporate group of people to remain faithful to you. And we thankful, we're thankful that that is based, at least in this book, on 21 chapters of you being faithful to Israel. And so we pray that that would be more true, that it would be increasingly true, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit clearly this morning, and tell us each individually things that we can do to be more faithful and to be drawn more closely into your presence, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.